you get those weeks sometimes, I suppose, I don't, I don't preach week in, week out, but you, you get those weeks sometimes where you're, you're preaching on something and then in the few minutes before the sermon, you just feel that there's a weightiness to what you're going to bring. And um, today it just feels like that's one of those times. I hadn't anticipated it particularly because of what I'm going to be speaking about. In, in, in a sense, I, on the surface of it, I didn't quite see why it would be such a weighty thing. But I think particularly with the Sunday that is today, with Remembrance Sunday, that actually the, the connection between what I'm going to share from Ephesians 2 is actually hugely relevant to um, the idea of war and peace and conflict. And I want to start by... Um, letting, by reading a passage from the Old Testament, which is a passage in the book of Isaiah, which you can follow along if you want to, which talks about what's going to happen at the end of time. At the end, at the end of time when God comes back to put all things right. Because the Christian message is a message of peace. The Christian message is a message that one day God is going to come and he is going to reconcile all things to himself. He's going to reconcile all peoples. He's going to make peace where there was war. He's going to make comfort where there was affliction. And I just want to read this out before we even turn to Ephesians to lift our eyes to what's, what God is going to do one day. And just remember, this, this is the kind of vision that I'm sure the millions and millions of people who have given their lives fighting for peace over the years would have been, if they didn't know it already, would have been absolutely delighted at the idea that that one day would happen. And so I just want to read, read this out to you. So Isaiah chapter 2, from verse 2 onwards, it says, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that represents the the temple which, uh, under the new covenant, is the people of God, will be lifted as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations will flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that he may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from, from Jerusalem. And now imagine you are, you're in a war zone and you hear this. He will judge between nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation anymore. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And that, that, that vision of when you're in a conflict zone, I've never, never been in a conflict zone particularly, never in my life, but when you're in, a, in an area of the world where you are daily faced with violence and oppression, the idea that there is a day coming when no nation will fight another nation is exceptionally good news. I, I was praying, some of you might know um, a, a guy called Dan Watkins who now lives with his wife in, um, in Egypt in, in, and he, he did a bit of work in South Sudan and some of you might be familiar with the fact that a few years ago the situation in South Sudan became critical and he had to flee the country and he came back here on a Sunday and I was praying with him and I remember quoting this passage whilst we were praying and then when he prayed he ended up quoting it and paraphrasing it in such a powerful way, it still hits me, where he prayed, that he prayed these words in a more modern kind of context, and he said, oh, thank you, Lord, there's going to be a day, there's going to be a day where tanks are going to be turned into agricultural items. There's going to be a day where barracks are going to become museums. 
And I just thought that's, that's, so, that's so powerful. It just puts it into real words that the gospel is a gospel of peace, not just of inner peace, not just of feeling good, so to speak, on the inside. It's a gospel that one day all wars will cease. All, all injustices will cease. All violence will cease. There's a day coming where ISIS is going to beat their machine guns into lawnmowers, so to speak. There's a day coming where there will be peace over the whole of the, whole of the world. And I just thought it was appropriate to share that at the beginning of what we're going to look at because... There are certain things in the passage which, I suppose, might not necessarily strike us, particularly in, in, our, in our culture. We might not necessarily understand why some of the things that I'm going to read are necessarily that big a deal. But I just think I'm, I wanted to start by reading that out and remembering the gospel is a gospel of peace. It's a gospel of peace between us and God, but it's also a gospel of peace between different nations and different peoples. And that's actually, I mean... I don't think we planned this particularly, did we, to have this, this, um, this particular part of Ephesians on this Sunday, but it, it, this particular part of Ephesians that we're going to look at, which is in chapter 2, so we've been going through for a few weeks, so if you want to open your Bibles up in Ephesians 2, you can turn there, and we looked in, in Ephesians chapter 1 at all of the blessings that have happened to us in Christ, and we spent quite a lot of time going over that, and then in chapter 2, chapter 2 is a little bit like the, in the shape of a cross. Because a cross has got a vertical beam and it's got a horizontal beam. And the first part of chapter 2 talks about the gospel of peace in the way that it applies to God and human beings being reconciled. The second half of Ephesians 2, which is what we're going to look at today, applies to the gospel of peace in such a way that human beings and people groups are reconciled to each other. And more specifically, actually, we're going to see how it applies much more widely than that, but in this particular passage, it's specifically about how Jewish people and non-Jewish people actually are reconciled in Jesus. Now, that might not necessarily strike you as something particularly important in the gospel, mainly because we live in the 21st century, and for us, Christianity is something that is kind of different to Judaism anyway. Um, We just think, well, of course Jews and Christians can both be Christians. What's, What's the big deal there? But actually, if you were around in the first century, and you remember that Jesus was a Jewish person, and that he preached to Jewish people, and that the first Christians were Jewish, pe- Jewish followers of Jesus, then when you bear in mind that in the Old Testament, Israel, or what later become the, became the Jewish nation, were God's people, suddenly the idea of non-Jewish people becoming part of God's people was a big deal. Which is why a chapter like this, which we'll read out in a second, is actually really, really important. It's not just, here's a little add-on to the gospel, it's actually central to the gospel, the fact that God's people, Israel, and those who were never part of God's people in the Old Testament get brought together, is actually central to the gospel. And we're going to see how that is. And we're going to see that it talks about a gospel of peace where there's reconciliation between two people groups where up until Jesus came along there was enmity between them. So if you want to open up Ephesians 2, we're going to read verses 11 to 22. So the Apostle Paul, who's an early Christian um, leader, ends up writing this to potentially a group of churches, but it seems that one of them would have been the, the church in Ephesus. And he writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that means non-Jews, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So, a passage which, as we'll see, talks about peoples being reconciled to each other through the gospel. Um, But there's quite a bit of stuff in there that we might read and think that sounds a little bit confusing. So we're going to hopefully try and demystify what's going on here. What does it mean when he talks about people being called the uncircumcision, people being called the circumcision, and so on. What does it mean to be strangers to the covenants of promise? And hopefully as I explain that, we'll be able to see that this passage presents the gospel in all of its glory. And when you take Ephesians 2 as a whole, you understand that everyone's been, through Christ, people are reconciled to God, but that they're also reconciled to each other. So just as at the beginning, if you were around last week, you remember Steph talked about the problem that we have outside of Christ. The problem at the beginning of Ephesians 2 is that we were dead in our sins. Essentially, a dead person has no power to do anything. As far as our relationship to God was concerned, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And God intervened to bring us out of that deadness. At this part of chapter 2, Paul changes his perspective. He thinks, I've looked at the vertical part of it, I'm now going to look at the horizontal part. And so we get a problem in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, remember that at that time you Gentiles... So that means people who weren't Jewish in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Um, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that might not necessarily have struck the first believers as a, a big deal. So the people in Ephesus were not Jewish, it seems, in the main. And until Paul had told them that, they might have just thought, oh, we, we never thought of ourselves as particularly alienated from God's people, we've just been brought in. But Paul says, actually, what you need to recognise is that before you met Jesus, you weren't just separated from God, you were separated from his people. And um, in, in the days that this letter was written, there were lots of Jewish people who didn't like non-Jewish people, and there were lots of non-Jewish people who didn't like Jewish people. And there was a fair amount of name-calling, which you can actually see in this passage. Paul says, you who were not Jewish... You used to be called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision. So a lot of Jewish people would boast of themselves and say, we are the circumcision. We're circumcised, which is a way of referring back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. They said, we're circumcised, we're God's people. You guys are uncircumcised and you are not God's people. And there was name calling on that part. For their part, the non-Jews a lot of the time would say, these guys are weird. They don't work on Saturdays. They must just be lazy and they have this operation which just sounds really painful in order to be part of God's people, they're bizarre. And there was this, there was this enmity between them, where they, they just called each other names, they, they didn't particularly like them, um, like each other. So obviously some Jews, and lots of Jews and Gentiles got on well, but there were groups of Jews and Gentiles who had this strong, fierce enmity between each other. And Paul uses those names, and says, you remember, you used to be called that. And then in verse 12 he explains, actually that, that was actually quite a big deal. Because there were a number of things that, because you weren't Jewish, you didn't actually get to benefit from. And so he talks about five things. He says in verse 12, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, or alienated from citizenship in Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
So in other words, though, I imagine the majority of us here are probably not Jewish. We're probably from a, a non-Jewish background, just because that's generally the makeup of the, the UK. Before Christ came along, you were alienated from Christ. Now, what does that mean? Because in a certain sense, both Jew and Gentile were alienated from Christ, weren't they? Before we, before we put our trust in Christ, wasn't everyone alienated from him? Well, one thing that might help is to re- realise that in the New Testament, when the word Christ is used, that's the same word in Greek as the Old Testament word Messiah. And so what Paul's saying is, there was a promise that the Messiah would come and deliver his people in the Old Testament. If you weren't part of God's people, you didn't have a Messiah, so to speak. You didn't have the promise of a Messiah who would come and deliver you. So you were separated from the Messiah. That's what, what Paul means here. So if you were not Jewish, you had no promise of a, a, a Messiah who'd come to deliver you. Bad point number one. Bad point number two, you weren't citizens in Israel. You were alienated from citizenship. Being a citizen's a big deal, which um, those of us here who are citizens of the European Union will all have one of these little things, which is a passport. So it's, it's a British passport, but it's also a passport that, that says I'm a European Union citizen, which means if I want to go to France, I have to turn up at the airport, walk through the fast queue, show them my, my passport, and they just let me straight through. And you, you've got this massive queue of European Union citizens that goes really quickly. And you generally have this really short queue of non-European Union citizens that takes forever to move past. Because all of them who aren't citizens of the European Union have to fill in their forms. They have to say, here's why we're travelling. Here's where we come from. Here's our visas. Here's the evidence that we're allowed in. If you're a citizen, you just flash your passport. There are benefits to being a citizen. There are benefits to being a citizen of the UK. You get to vote. You get to... Um, you, you get to basically be generally better off than if you weren't a citizen in this country. And Paul says, if you weren't a Jew, you didn't get to participate in the life of Israel. You didn't get to get all of the stuff that came with being part of God's people. You were cut off from that. You were like the people who were queuing in the long queue at the airport. You couldn't just flash your passport, get through all of the benefits of travelling around Europe completely free. You were alienated from that. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. God had made certain promises to Israel. He'd made certain, I suppose, a modern word might be contract, where God said, I'm going to do this for you. If, if, if you obey my laws, I'm going to do this to you. And also, I'm going to promise this amazing deliverance that's going to happen to you guys. If you're not part of God's people, you, you, you didn't get given that promise. It's a little bit the same as if you've got a, a group of children in a room and, they're, and, a, and there's a dad there who's a dad of a few of the people, and that dad says, when you grow up, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's what I'm going to... So, when you grow up, I'm going to buy you a car. If you're one of the kids who happens to not be that person's son or daughter, you're going to listen to that and think, that sounds amazing, but you have no promise that's given to you. You're alienated from that. You're strangers to that, which ultimately means that you had no hope and you had no God in the world. You... Paul speaking to the Ephesians at the time they would have worshipped statues and idols and metal images and so on he said well you had loads of gods but you didn't have any true god in the world the same way you look at the UK it might not be statues and golden calves and so on but instead it would be things like glossy magazines fame celebrity money comfort whatever it is that you put your trust in you have all of those false gods but Paul says you had no you didn't know the real god You didn't know the true God. You didn't know the true God who chose his people and who brought them out of Egypt. You were alienated from all of that. In other words, it's like being the person on the outside. It's like being the person who's just completely rejected, completely cast out. 
you, you, like, you, you know, some of you might know what it's like to be that. You think, I feel like I'm on the outside of that group. I wish I could be on the inside, but I'm just on the outside. I'm not part of them, and I know that. And Paul says, if you were, if you were a Gentile and non-Jew, that was the situation you were in before Jesus came along. So we get this quite a bleak prospect. And actually, I think we, obviously, again, living 2,000 years after, we probably don't appreciate just how significant that was because we kind of take for granted the fact now that we can just we can be a Christian and we don't have to be Jewish but at the time that would have been a big deal and so Paul says you were separated from God's people so we have a problem beginning of chapter 2 we have a problem you're dead in your sins second half of chapter 2 we have a problem you're separated from God's people if you are not a Jewish person and then Paul says in verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When Paul says, but now, generally, it's time to listen up. It's a little bit like, they don't seem to have them that much anymore, but the, in the old days where they'd interrupt radio shows to make a special announcement, it's a little bit like Paul has just interrupted the radio broadcast of all of the ter- terrible things that happen if you're not Jewish in order to say, big announcements, the Gentiles are actually allowed to be part of God's people now. And it's like everyone's thinking, how on earth does that happen? But now, those of you who were far off, in other words, non-Jewish people, have been brought near. You've been brought near to God's people. That's exceptionally good news. That's amazing. But it immediately prompts the question, how on earth did that even happen? How on earth did that happen? How was it? Was it just that suddenly, I don't know, the Jews had a bit of a change of mind and they thought, actually, we'll let these guys in. Well, they couldn't exactly do that for various reasons that we'll see in a minute. But that's not what it's down to. The reason Paul can give this big announcement, climactic announcement, the Gentiles and the Jews are allowed to be together now, is because of Jesus. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, in verse 14. Jesus is the one who brings peace between Jew and Gentile in the gospel. Now, when we, we think of peace, you think, what kind of person brings peace between two groups of people who have fallen out? Oh, a bit of participation here. What kind of person does that? A mediator. Yep, so uh, you have uh, no, two families who have fallen out, or two, generally, two nations that have fallen out, and so on. You get a mediator involved, who's going to gather the two, who's going to talk through their differences, who's going to try and reconcile them. And so, um, I mean, they've, they've made... TV program after TV program that's devoted to get it to sorting out arguments between between two parties that have fallen out, and the mediator comes along and says, "Okay, well, why don't you forgive this guy for this, and why don't you realise that actually you're not that different? You can come together." And when the mediators reconciled them and they've forgiven each other, the mediator's job's done. He just ups and goes. That's not the way in which Christ Himself is our peace. The way Christ Himself is our peace is a little bit more like a mediator saying, "Right, you guys have fallen out." your enmity between each other. So what I suggest we do is that I permanently invite both of you to live in my house. And you're going to live with me. And I'm going to reconcile you. And in fact, I'm going to be there for the whole time. I am going to be the foundation of your reconciliation. I'm going to be the foundation of your peace because you're going to be with me constantly. Which means that it's not the fact that you've suddenly managed to forgive each other that's the foundation of you being at peace with each other. It's the fact that I'm here. It's the fact that I have been the foundation of your peace. I experienced this quite vividly on, on Friday. I went to uh, have, a, have a meal with um, a few people, some of whom were from, from Rev or had been Rev in the past, who were um, Jewish Christians, and then some other people who were uh, other Jewish Christians, but also some who weren't, including myself. And um, the, 
the thing that struck me is everyone, everyone there apart from I think one person was a Christian and there, was, there were Christians who were Jewish Christians from an Israeli background and there was a Palestinian Christian there and the Palestinian Christian told us their story about how, bef- how they met with Jesus and they found the power to forgive what the Israelis had done to, their, to, to her friends in the past. And you just hear the story and you think, the, the reason that you have found the ability to forgive what other people have done to, to your family is because of Jesus. The reason that actually you can have Jewish people and Palestinians around the same table laughing with each other isn't because they just said, you know what, let's you know, scrap all the injustices that have been done by both sides, let's just get on. The reason there was that peace is because they found Jesus. And I just thought, that is exactly what I'm preaching on on Sunday. Thank you very much for that illustration, Lord. Um, but I just thought it was, it was such a powerful way of seeing that. And Paul says, actually, Jesus is the mediator who invites you both to live in his house and to be with him forever. It's not like you just, I don't know, sort out your differences and then you get on and then the mediator goes away. And Paul says that Jesus has done three things, specifically, uh, in order to reconcile and bring peace. So in verses 14 to 16, Paul says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility Paul says Jesus has done three things in order to bring complete and utter peace the first is he's broken down the dividing wall that separated two people groups the second is he's created one single new person and the third is he's reconciled that person to God And so Paul says he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, which Paul explains that there was a wall between Jew and Gentile. It's not just that they didn't particularly like each other. There was a wall that divided between them. The Jewish people had a covenant that was made with with them by God that said, if you're going to be my people, here are certain things that you have to do. You have to be circumcised. You have to um, observe the Sabbath. You have to have certain dietary laws. And those particular laws were binding on the Jewish people because they'd entered into a covenant with God. They'd entered into a contract with him where God says, I will be your God and as a response this is what you need to do the problem with that is that it creates a barrier between Jewish people and Gentile people because that means you can't accept a Gentile person who is not willing to become circumcised or to obey the Sabbath or to basically become Jewish so in other words there was a a divide between Jews and Gentiles and there was this wall in the middle which Paul claims is the law in The law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The law, in the sense that it was a binding contract on Israel, was like a wall between the two. And Paul says, Jesus has broken down that wall on the cross. In his body, as he hung there on the cross, part of what he was doing was actually breaking down that wall. It's not the... It's not that God made a mistake when he gave the law. It's not that the law doesn't have some kind of role to play, but the law given as a covenant that was binding to Israel was broken down in Christ. It was destroyed. Which means that suddenly that wall crumbles down in the middle and you've just got two separate people groups, in theory, with nothing, nothing stopping them come together at that point. It's the first thing that's happened. There's no barrier anymore because of what Jesus did on the cross. And secondly, just to make it, it kind of gets more and more amazing as you go. He's broken down the barrier, and then it says that he's made them one new person. So he, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thereby making peace. 
Jesus doesn't just say, okay, right, let's help you guys to get on now. Because, okay, I've broken down this, this law that kind of was binding on Israel, and now that, that separation's broken down. Let's help you guys to resolve your differences, and then I'm off. What Jesus does is he does more than that. He says, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm, it, it's as if you are two different human beings. Jewish human beings and non-Jewish human beings. I'm going to turn you into one single human being. So it's like two countries that are at war with each other. It's not just that they stop being at war, it's that they decide to become one single country. Which is pretty much just as unheard of as you get. Two countries that fiercely hate each other. I mean, I suppose to, to use a very I suppose a powerful modern illustration, would be the, it would be the equivalent of Israel and Palestine deciding, you know what, stop the war, we're going to become one single country. That's the kind of scale you're, you're talking about here. And Jesus says, what I'm going to do on the cross is break down the wall that divides them and turn them into one single new people. You can't fall out with your own body, really. It's a little bit tough to do that. You, do, you don't generally tend to, I don't know, you never tend to meet someone who says, you know what, my right side has just fallen out with my left side. They're just constantly arguing, my right arm, they're just at each other all the time. You don't get that. A, a human being doesn't fall out with him or herself. A human being, by, kind of, by definition, is a unity. And Paul is saying, actually, what Jesus did on the cross is he made one single new human being between Jewish people who are in Christ and Gentile people who are in Christ. We become the body of Christ through, what, through putting our faith in Jesus and through being baptised into Christ. We become part of his body. Christ doesn't have two or three bodies. In fact, there's quite a, it's, it's supposed to be taken with a pinch of salt but, uh, and supposed to be read in a kind of sarcastic way. But Paul in 1 Corinthians is writing to a church which is divided. Some people are saying, we follow the Apostle Peter. Some people are saying, we follow the Apostle Paul. And others are being smug and saying, we follow Jesus. And Paul's just saying, you, the lot, just seriously, the lot of you need to shut up and calm down. Has Christ been cut up into pieces? You ask them that kind of, you know, rhetorical question, a, rhetor- a question that doesn't expect an answer. It's kind of like, have you just managed to break Jesus up into different bits? Saying, no, you're the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't have three bodies. It's not like he's been severed at the arm or anything. You guys are a unity. You can't be saying, I'm following Paul, I'm following Apollos, I'm following Jesus, because I'm really cool. And he's just saying, no, you need to be united. Because Jesus has one body, which means his church needs to be one single body. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, which would have been just as crazy a statement as you could make in the ancient world. There's neither male nor female. That's a that's a stark statement in the ancient world. That's kind of taken for granted nowadays. At least in practice, if not always in reality, but in, sorry, in, in theory, if not in reality, but it's taken for granted. The equality between w- women and men is kind of one of those things that we say, that's a good thing. In the ancient world, no. That's, that's not the way it worked. The idea that someone could be, a, a, a woman could be just as much part of a people as a man was just not heard of. But Paul says, in Christ... The division between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, has broken down. Between slave and free, between rich and poor, between black and white, between married and unmarried. All of these divisions have been broken down in Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that people aren't different. It doesn't suddenly mean that women don't have a womb anymore. That's, like, that, there are differences, but when it comes to our standing in God's people, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You're all one in Christ. I suppose a bit of a challenge to to myself and to us is, are we living that out? Are we living that out in the way that we relate to each other in church? Are we welcoming people who are unlike us? We're we're starting to become a much more diverse bunch, which is great, which means that there are people who will come in who will not be the same as you. It's very comfortable talking to people who are the same as you. 
it's much less comfortable talking to people who aren't the same as you, but Paul says this, is, this isn't a matter of personal preferences, this is a matter of illustrating what the gospel is. So I suppose a, ch- a challenge is, are we actually welcoming to people who aren't like us? Maybe to, w- without becoming formulaic about it, if you're, a, if you're in a GC, does your GC tend to just attract people who are completely identical? Like I said, it's easier to build something with people who are identical. Bricks tend to fit together when they're the same size, much easier. But when you come back, it's just a, a, a wall all of the same colour. It's much better to have a mosaic where you've got loads of different colours. And so let's not be formulaic. Don't go and help find people to join your GC who, aren't even, like, who don't even exist. But are you just seemingly attracting one single kind of person to your GC? And it might just be worth having a bit of a think about whether there's something about the way you relate to each other that might not necessarily be fully welcoming in the way the gospel is. I think we need to, to think about that from time to time and not get too comfortable with the way we always do things. So we've got two people becoming one single person. And then ultimately, both are reconciled to God. Paul says, there's the ultimate peace. He says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. This is verse 16. Thereby killing hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Once Jew and Gentile have been brought together into one new humanity, one new person, they are both reconciled to God. Now that Christ has come, it's not like Jews are reconciled to God in a particular way and Gentiles in another way. Both of them are brought into one single people and are reconciled to God only on this, that they stand on Christ and trust in Christ. That's, that's what defines you as part of God's people. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not whether you follow dietary requirements or whether you don't. It's not whether you wear a certain particular brand of clothing or whether you don't. It's not whether you're male or female, unmarried, married. It's about whether you trust in Christ. And that is right central to the gospel. It's peace between two people, two people groups who have been in conflict and peace has been brought. No one is too far off to be brought near. If you're here today and you, you are, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, and part of what's stopping you is to say, I'm just completely different, I'm too different, I don't fit in with these guys, you are an ideal candidate to become part of God's people. No one is too far off. It says here that... Christ proclaimed peace to those who were far off, which Paul is talking about the Gentiles who were far off out of God's people. They're as far off from God's people as you could have got. You cannot be too far from God's people for Christ not to proclaim peace to you. And so I'd encourage you, if, you're, if, if, if that's something that's stopping you, where you're just thinking, I don't, I, I don't think I'll fit in, we will make you fit in. That's part of what being the church is. It's that we don't just stay the same, we morph and change to the kind of people who are here. It's not that we compromise on what we believe, but in Christ, we end up saying, actually, you're different to me, and that's great. Because actually, we can take a step back and see a mosaic rather than just a brick wall. And the result, in verses 19 to 22, is so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The result of what Jesus has done is that those of us who do not come from a Jewish background have been brought into God's people and are fully citizens. We've heard a lot about refugees recently from, from Syria, and lots of European countries have been taking in lots of refugees, but they still have the status of refugee. It's great. Like, I'm all for bringing refugees. I think that's a godly good thing to do. But they're still refugees, technically. They're not citizens. Paul says here, you've gone from being a refugee, from being a stranger, to being a citizen. 
It's like David Cameron saying, we're going to hand out these things to every single refugee who comes across the channel. That's, that's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. And in fact, more than that, he says, you're not just citizens, you're members of God's household, you're members of his family. So it's a little bit more like the Queen saying, oh yeah, and by the way, David, when you've given them that passport, I'm going to adopt them into my family. You go from being a refugee who's fled their country to becoming part of the royal family. That's exactly what's happened to us in Jesus. We go from being strangers, people who weren't even ever part of the promises of God, who've been brought in and part of his people now. That's the gospel. And even more than that, it just keeps getting better, this family is actually a little bit like a building. It's built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, which basically means there are the, the, the teaching that the earliest apostles had about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, forms the foundation of the church. A little bit like when you say, this company is built on the foundation of this CEO. You don't mean literally that the CEO is lying in the foundations of the building. You mean that what he stands for forms the foundation of who you are. And Paul says, the message of the gospel that we as apostles preach, and that these prophets who have heard about these new things that God's doing through the gospels, that forms the foundation of the church. And Jesus is the most important part of that building, the cornerstone. In those days, it wasn't actually the foundation that was the the big deal. It was the cornerstone, because everything else was built around that. It's a little bit like we become little bricks who are built on that foundation of the gospel and are built into Jesus, around Jesus. Bricks from various countries, bricks from various age groups, different backgrounds, different ages, different races and languages, and we're all being built around Jesus. And when you step back, you suddenly realise the building's a temple. The building is a place where God lives by his spirit. This gathering of people here today is a temple. It's the place where God's realm, heaven, and the realm of human beings meets. We are the temple of God. And Paul is using something which, up until now in the Bible, uh, up until now in in history, had only applied to the Jewish people. They were the ones who had the temple. And Paul says, actually, no, now, in Christ, you guys are the temple. It's absolutely mind-blowing. What we have at Rev is a diverse temple that is part of an even bigger temple that is made out from believers of every nation, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, male, female, slave, free, black, white, whatever. If anyone is in Christ, they are part of that overall temple. And that's the gospel of peace, of reconciliation. And what I thought might might just be helpful to finish is, if if the band could come up and just to to be ready, is... um, I've done this once before and apparently people found it quite helpful is to let this passage have the last say and to basically just read through it and to imagine that to, to think, okay, this isn't, to think this isn't Paul writing a letter but this is Paul standing here and kind of explaining what he wants us to get and I just, to kind of just read through this passage in a bit more of a paraphrase so we can see the whole thing fitting together and then after that we'll all sing together and Break bread together to remember that we're all one in Christ. Maybe break bread in larger groups, maybe. That might be a good idea. To just be like, actually, rather than doing it in twos or threes, let's break it in larger groups so that we can explicitly say we're all sharing from the same body. We're all sharing from the same cup. We're all one. And so I'm just going to read this back, paraphrase this a little bit, and then we're going to stand and praise God for the, the gospel of peace. This is what I want you to know. Most, most of you here are not from a Jewish background. And you probably remember that you've got, you used to get called names. You used to be called the uncircumcision by people who called themselves the circumcision, which is only really an operation that's made, in, made by hands anyway. Now, what you need to remember is that that time, before Jesus, 
you were separated from any hope of a Messiah. You weren't a citizen of Israel. You had no benefits. It's not like you had the passport to walk through the borders of, borders of Israel and say, oh, I have all of the benefits of being part of God's people. You were alienated from that. You had no promises. You hadn't, didn't have any covenants made with you. You didn't have any hope. Because all of the promises were made to the Jewish nation. You had no hope, which meant you had no God in the world. That's, that's how dark it was for you. But now, listen to this, now... In Christ Jesus, because of what he's done at the cross, those of you, non-Jews, who were miles off, far out of God's people, you've been brought near. Because of his death on the cross, you've been brought near and made part of God's people. He is the one who brings peace. He's the, he is our peace. He's the one we point to and say, he's the reason we're reconciled. He's made both of us, against all expectations, he's made us both one. It's not like we're two nations anymore. We're one people. And he's taken the law, which made a, bit of a, which made a division between us. You Gentiles who were uncircumcised, you were, you were the other one side of the wall. You Jews who were circumcised were the other side. He's broken that wall down in his flesh. Every blow on his back. Every hit on the nail was another brick of that wall being taken away. And he's created, it's like he's created one single new person out of two people. And that's made peace. And even more than that, he's taken both of those people, made them one person, and taken that person and presented that person to God and said, I reconcile this person to you. From both Jew and Gentile. And he's completely annihilated war and hostility through that. Here's another way of putting it. It's like he came from heaven and proclaimed, there's good news of peace to those of you who were miles away. And there's good news of peace to those of you who felt near anyway. Because in Jesus, in this person, we have access to the Father. We get to come to God as our Father because of what he's done. Whether we're from a Jewish background or a non-Jewish background, wherever we come from, we get access to the Father, which means you're not strangers anymore. You're a citizen. You're refugees who've been given the status of citizen and you're holy. You're set apart for him and you're part of his family. You're part of his family. The, the family that is built on the values that people like me, Paul and, and Peter and James and John and these guys who saw Jesus raised from the dead and heard his teaching. It's part of it, built on those kind of values. And Jesus is the most important part of it, obviously. But it's like we're little bricks from different nations, different backgrounds, different age groups. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave free, being built around the cornerstone of Jesus. And this whole structure, when you step back, you suddenly realise this is a gigantic temple that God is building for his presence to dwell in. The God who said, I'm going to make my name dwell in that great big temple in Jerusalem, now says that I'm going to make my name dwell in all of these communities all around the world where my spirit remains. So you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you for the good news. We thank you for the good news. And we thank you that as we stand now, we are your temple. Regardless of background, regardless of what we've done in the past, regardless of how far off we felt, we are your people, we are your temple, we are one person in Christ. And Father, I pray you'd be with us now as we praise you, as we break bread and remember what you've done for us. I pray, Father, help us to remember you have made peace. And I pray, Father, we'd remember that ultimately there will be a day where there will be universal peace. It's not a... It's not pie in the sky. It's not a kind of something that's just too airy-fairy to think about. There will be a day where there will be complete peace. 
And we want to be those people who demonstrate that in advance through the way we live with each other. We want to demonstrate and live out the gospel. And so we pray, Father, would you be with us by your spirit as we praise you now and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.